I still occasionally all meet guys who train back in Horion's garage with Hicks and Hoyce and Hegan. And they'll be, God, I wish I would never have quit. But I never meet somebody who says, I wish I would have quit back when I was a blue belt. Ah, I stuck this thing out. Now I'm a damn black belt. I wish I would have quit. That's something you don't hear. Welcome to Fervor White Belt, the podcast where we explore the world of martial arts and the fascinating journeys of practitioners who embrace the eternal path of learning. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda, and I couldn't be more excited to bring you today's episode, packed with insights, wisdom, and a dash of inspiration. Today, we have a special treat in store for you as we delve into the world of BJJ with an exceptional guest who has left an indelible mark on the sport. Joining us is none other than the legendary Chris Howder. A pioneer and respected figure in the jiu-jitsu community, Chris's passion, knowledge, and dedication have made him a true living legend. Chris Howder's journey in martial arts spans over four decades with a deep-rooted love for BJJ as one of the famous Dirty Dozen, the first 12 non-Brazilian black belts in BJJ. His story is filled with triumphs, challenges, and invaluable experiences that have shaped his understanding of the art. Throughout his extensive career, Chris has not only contributed to the evolution of BJJ, but has also been instrumental in spreading its knowledge to countless practitioners worldwide. As a sought-after instructor and mentor, he has shared his wisdom with students from all walks of life, imparting not just techniques, but also invaluable life lessons that extend far beyond the mat. In this episode, we have the privilege of delving into Chris Howder's rich history and uncovering the pivotal moments that defined his journey. We'll explore the early days when BJJ was still a niche pursuit in the United States and how Chris played a pivotal role in its growth and popularity. We'll also discuss the importance of continuous learning, the mindset required to overcome challenges, and how martial arts can foster personal growth and development. Chris's insights and anecdotes will not only entertain, but also inspire both seasoned practitioners and those who are just beginning their martial arts journeys. And with that, I give you Chris Howder. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. Such an honor to have you here. Six degree black belt issued to you from the master himself, the legend Higgin Machado, correct? Yep, I got my blue belt was, I think, kind of a joint belting between Hoyce and Hegan. And I got all my other belts through Hegan. The Machado brothers promoted me when all of them were still at the, the current school. And currently, my coach is Hicks and Gracie. I see him usually once a month, sometimes twice for the last um, year, year and a half after COVID broke, the lockdowns broke. And um, yeah, I'm kind of the, I believe in the Dan Inosanto model of learning, which is always retain the hunger of a student. Avoid thinking you know things. Like even the arm lock that I know very well, there's still little things that, that I'll find where, oh, if I just would have moved my hip a quarter inch tilt to the left, it would have been better. Because the art of jujitsu is an art. And no one masters an art. Artists practice, much like science. I mean, humans, we think, including me, that we know everything. But ultimately, humility and curiosity is the guide. Has this always been like this for you, or was this kind of an evolution? I mean, were you like a, a hardhead, sort of high-energy wrestler as a kid? And I mean, I certainly had my versions of being hard-headed, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm raising my son, who's eight, and 
God, it just flashes me back to childhood all, all the time. Just We're so much like he's stubborn, ADHD all over the map, hates being told what to do. And yeah, like that was most of my youth experience. And, and I would say that until my young 20s, it's like I had to learn everything the hard way. And I remember my father telling me after picking me up out of jail when I was like 17, he said, you know, you can't learn everything the hard way. You won't live long enough or even live if that's how you're going to run your life. Although I did not change immediately, those words definitely stuck with me. And I went through some various things in life and everyone out of it, I would see where I learned something the hard way and how miserable it was and when I embraced it early on. Because I think the key is recognizing when you embrace learning before the hard way. Because usually that's the part we don't think about. And we, we almost make an ego narcissistic assumption that, oh, I did that because because I knew it. it's like, no, you learned that, you know, you just got lucky and happened to have been open enough and willing enough to learn it the easy way rather than the hard way. There's something to be said about questioning authority. And, it, yeah. you know, I've always I've always had this this, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a pro or a con of questioning authority throughout. It's both. It's both. It goes back to that trope also of the whole questions that you get when you're showing a technique, the whole what if. Well, what if, what if, what if, what if. Your thoughts on questioning authority, the strengths and the weaknesses of that. Well, I am basically what would be called a Western Taoist with some Hegelian influence to where I like to look at things. I, I strive to look at both the positive and negative of every aspect of life, material and immaterial. And questioning authority or it's kind of like, I hesitate to even use these words because these words are so politically loaded now. But when you think of conservatism and progressivism, each of these two things have a positive aspect and a negative aspect. When conservatism is good, it's preserving institution. It's, it's keeping structure kind of like the old man's wisdom. And the progressivism is pushing for new ideas, more freedom, more liberty, whether it's for the individual or the group, um, a new way of trying things. And, and this balance kind of allows progress in any area to happen, but not happen so fast it disrupts everything. And because in the collective, the way we humans work is not the same way we work as individuals, too. And jujitsu, the art, is this amazing thing that you could trace its story through that process of it took somebody wanting to try something new in Brazil to break with the Japanese canon and to be radical and liberally new at that time. Now you have guys who are clinging to that new, institutionalizing it and making it, if you go outside of it, it's canon. If you add a footlock, it's canon. If you do other things. And environment is stronger than will. And what happens is we have these pockets of, of environments and these groups of humans will eventually have mutations in the art and create new routes. And when they are isolated, you could, after X amount of generations, you have two totally different arts. Example, language. 
if you and I were suddenly transported back in time to 1600s London, England, we would barely be able to understand the English being spoken. And they wouldn't understand us at all, let alone the slang, colloquialisms, idiom, all that would be out, out the door. Because like everything in a culture and a biology, although it takes millennia to change, but in culture evolves. And it evolves because of stimulus, mutations, because of people questioning authority, changing ideas, testing things. And some of those are good questions and some of those are foolish. And if we are hopefully somehow with the oversight of the scientific method and the impact of bad mutations don't last anyways because they can't survive, then eventually over the broad history of time, we can see the change in growth. In the past few years, when I've been listening to you, there's been this introduction, a lot of this infusion of philosophy, history, into sort of the messaging and, and what I'm getting across from you. And I'm curious, like, it seems like uh, with the advent of podcasting and all these things, the, the meta of that kind of stuff has, has sort of, it's permeated, you know, yes. um, globally, it seems like, especially for those of us, those ADHD types that, that have really difficulty reading these thick, yeah. you know, books, which used to be like the, the property of those type of individuals, solely those kind of people that could go through that kind sure. of thing. Sure. And even that, oftentimes, you're reading something that was written in Latin, French, old style England, English, and even that, the translation just like martial art evolution, languages evolve and words change in their nuanced meaning. And it's when it changes in a nuanced way is when it goes over most of our heads. When it changes in a radical way, like, oh man, dude, that wave was sick. That was so sick, that armbar. I mean, we quickly understand the slang in contagion, but if you didn't experience that shift, and you look back, you might think they actually meant it was sick, like bad, ill, not good, right? And so like, that's where we open up into, in philosophy and linguistics, you can get into like, what is language? And grappling arts are kind of like a language. We are learning a language. Sometimes it's more structured and canonized, more conservative and preserved. Sometimes it's very free-flowing and constantly risking and all that. And neither of those are necessarily bad and neither are necessarily good. I think there is a balance to find what is good through both aspects of it. And the way to find what is good, because it's usually cl more clear to see what is bad, like an ideology. It's pretty clear to look at any ideology or subset of, of an ideology and go, oh, here's where it's bad. But most people only look to what they think is good on their side and only see what's bad on the other. Whereas my philosophy is to genuinely try to step out of myself, to put myself not only in another person's shoes, but in an omni-observer's shoes. And I'm not after the answer I'm answer more better questions to get closer to an ever elusive truth. So speaking of uh, things that don't work or that are not true, or I want, I've been on this kick lately of uh, BJJ fallacies, right? And um, some people have brought up things like uh, you know this this particular technique is no longer relevant in this sort of context, and and that one in this context. Have you seen 
over all these these decades that you've been in this, things that maybe have sort of fallen out of favor are not as effective anymore. And w- what is the context that you're coming from? Because my assumption when I think of Chris Howder is self-defense, and perhaps that's a narrow way of thinking. Well, my my philosophy is, and, and mind you, this is only a model. It's a metaphor, is that you think street, you train the sport, and you practice the art. That's the balance. And that's a way to escape the illusion of a binary, good, bad, wrong, right. You try to make a three-point perspective where most of the time, or all the time, we see things and we think in the binary. It's how our brains work. It's how our, our machines work. And it's an attempt to create an omniscient view and turn something, and it, we could jump into a time in the nature of the universe and dimensions, it's trying to get out of two-dimensional thinking because we are three-dimensional creatures that basically think in the plane of two dimensions, including language, which is why so often language requires so much adjectives and modifiers of words because otherwise we lose meaning. If I say, your shirt is black, in one sense, yes, that is true. But then what if you saw something even more black? Your shirt's gray then, right? And so everything is, is based on its relative things. And not to sound like some kooky French postmodernist, but like they do have a point on the nature of reality. And we don't always know what is real. And just to throw it out there is often the critics of postmodernism have the most subjective truth, metaphorical ways of escaping saying what they really want to say. So yesterday I had a private, he's a black belt, and we were talking very much about a move that I used to instruct that I no longer really teach because it's not really relevant anymore because the counters that developed out of it became too good. That jujitsu trait was an evolutionary trait that would quickly get killed in real combat, hence not reproduce. And I show it often historically like one example, it would be when we first learned one arm guard passing, you would very much leave your other arm exposed in a triangle or an arm bar. And when I was first learning, some of the older guys would still instruct it that old way. Whereas like Keegan and Hickson would say, no, this is how you really do it. And then lately, well, actually this was about two years back, Hickson was showing me another version of that one arm pass. And how once you understand all the pitfalls, you can go back to it. So a lot of times we teach things like there is. And again, here's the conservative value is there is a necessity to teach things in a way that follows a structural pattern. If you think of this as a language, I'm better off learning how to speak the Queen's English in a very proper way, learning proper grammar, proper enunciation and all that, then learning some slang, then writing my own stuff and adding a story. Then I am of learning pure Chuck's backyard grapple fest street slang because I'll never be able to advance from that. The platform is a conservative base that allows for progressive growth. And in like politics, when conservatives stop allowing for progressive growth and even fight to go backwards, look out, you're in trouble. 
And when progressives start being stubborn and clinging to institution of their new ideas, look out, you're morphing that in a way that it probably ought not go. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, T-E-E spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at forever white belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. You're mainly playing gi, correct? Do you play no gi at all? I've always done both. And again, that's because each of them have a strength and a weakness. The gi is sticky and you can work on framing more. You can slow the game down. No gi is fast. It's slippery. You have to have impeccable timing. And you don't get that impeccable timing from the gi grappling, nor do you get that control from no gi grappling. So each of them have this blessing and curse. I used to say all the time back in the like 20 years ago when people was to gi or not to gi is a dumb question. That's a dumb question. That's like saying, do I need water or food? Let's choose water or food. So no, you need both. And in my model, my triangular model, you think street and you must always think it, not necessarily train it. Because sometimes when you train it, you lose reality because you can't practically train punching you in the nuts or throat punching or eye gouging or any of that stuff. So you think street. You train the sport because your body has to be fit. You have to be able to perform. You can have all the knowledge in the world. And if you're weak, inflexible, slow, and your timing is bad, it means nothing. And in the sport... In the ideal, we are creating rules. We are creating an environment to which we can preserve the art. So in the sport of judo, not the art, the sport of it, and Greco, we make these rules where you can't grab the legs. Because otherwise it becomes wrestling in a gi, where everybody will bend down low and bend over to protect the ankles and shots. It becomes collegiate-style wrestling in a gi. And then we lose that whole magic of the upright throw, because that trait will not exist in the environment in which we create it. When you breed dogs, it's selective breeding. The short-haired terrier is not going to last in the Alaskan tundra. The long-haired sled dog is not going to last in the Ecuadorian jungle. And these are traits And again, it's not that one is good or bad, it just is. And when we remove the value judgment and the ethics judgment, and in sports, the greed, then we get closer to truth. And any promoter, understandably, and again, this isn't a value judgment, it's trying to make money. So UFC realized through early polling that the crowd was more excited watching guys stand up and punch each other in the face than watching this boring guard thing lasting for 10 minutes. So they change the rules and stand you up because their goal is to put asses in seats, is to sell the tickets. Then you have political and economic reasons why judo made changes, Greco made changes, IBJJF, 
Abu Dhabi. All of these are environments. They're all uh, also experiments. And out of it, you get a style. And if they go long enough, it speciates and you get a completely separate species. Like a, a grizzly bear and a polar bear. They can breed because they're still close enough, but they're clearly subspecies of each other. And when you get a leopard and a cheetah, you now have complete speciation where the leopard's legs aren't long enough but to hunt in the plains of Africa, it will starve. And the cheetah is ideally suited and has evolved, has bred through natural selection to be able to perfectly hunt in the plains of Africa and fall apart in the jungle of the Congo. So from a purely scientific viewpoint, I approach the sport realizing that there are different intentions of creating these rules. The ideal, of course, is to create the rules to preserve the art. And it gets, in my opinion, slightly corrupted, but sometimes corruption ends up to good shit when the point is to get eyeballs watching it for an entertainment sport. Again, I'm not against that. Had UFC not blown up because they changed the rules, it might have died and it wouldn't have carried its own thing, right? Like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with promotion. Do you think a gi informs no gi Absolutely. and vice versa? I've often said, because I've been grappling now since high school wrestling, so like, you know, 30 plus years, God, I don't even know how long. It's like 35, 40 almost, whatever. Yeah, geez, 40 years. I can almost always tell when I'm rolling with somebody who has done very little gi and we're rolling no gi or sparring MMA. Like I have a, two of my black belts are pro MMA. One of them is UFC, one of them's a Bellator. And I can always tell that this person doesn't roll in a gi or never has, or hasn't in a long time. I can also tell when I'm rolling with the gi, this person never rolls no gi. I can feel their, their areas of what I'm going to call ignorance. And again, not in a judgment way, in what, what the, the word truly means to ignore. You can feel it in the game. And I've noticed in myself, when I take off a gi and I roll no gi, I'm quickly reminded of the value of no gi. Like this guard recovery becomes a lot better when you don't have someone holding on to your, your pants. And your timing has to become really good. And you, you have to make bigger and more accented hip movements. Then you go put on a gi and suddenly you apply that knowledge that you just picked up in no gi and you're like, that just works so well in the gi. So yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer in diversify your training. Now, part of the problem is we don't live long enough to do everything. Just like I hope with, we can't learn everything the hard way. We won't live long enough or the lesson will kill us. So we have to learn some things by the structure, the canon, the conservative nature of what we have. And yesterday's liberalism becomes tomorrow's conservative staple. And th th that's just kind of the nature of reality. To suddenly take off my the gi, but declare, I have found the life. No gi is where it's at. It's flowing. It's fast. It's more free. We don't have to worry about this stupid belt and the rank structure and all this stuff. 
and suddenly I go full-fledged no-gi, my tribe that likes wearing gis is going to be kind of like, whoa, I, I'm going to have to change tribes. And when it comes down to very emotional things like religion or political ideology, the pressure to not change your opinion, regardless of the facts, becomes so overwhelmingly strong. Because the things we fear more, more than even injury or death in culture is public shame. We fear being shunned out of the group, which is why the word cancel gets so big, because it's an emotional reaction. So like the other day I was scrolling and, and I saw one of those online debates and I, I made one comment. I try not to ever comment because social media is the worst platform for any nuanced discussion. It's just horrible. But it was something, an argument between what's better, IBJJF or Abu Dhabi? That's that same thing. That same thing is neither is better. Both organizations have a corruption problem. Both of them have a greed problem. But that doesn't mean the athletes who compete in them are part of that. What makes a great jiu-jitsu student? Humility and willingness. I often say, and it's not always true, to use a, an analogy, metaphorical model of, of the belts. The white belt is the humble belt. They come in, they realize they don't know anything, they have their first roll and just get their ass kicked by someone who's 20 pounds lighter and you're humble. If you have a large ego, you are humiliated. If you're willing to learn, you are humble. The blue belt is the eager belt. You're getting a taste of this. You finally got your blue belt. You want more. The learning happens literally every class. Every class you gain a little bit more. At this rate, I'm going to be a black belt in a year. It's that eager belt. You're hungry. Then you, you basically, just by showing up, you gain more knowledge. Just by grappling, you improve. And you get to purple belt on your strengths. Your purple belt is like the first earned belt. You felt like you really had to, to, to like earn that belt. The blue belt, you're going to get that just by showing up. I mean, you have to actively try to not learn this to not get a blue belt. But your purple belt, you, you've got to earn it. You've had some big breakthroughs. You've done some shit. Maybe you now are very comfortable in one area, whatever it is. You get there on your strengths. To get through your purple belt, you got to address your weaknesses. And the purple belt is what I call the cocky belt. That's the belt where often we start thinking, God, I'm pretty good. I tapped out a black belt. I did this the other day. And the cockiness is a driver, just like yin and yang, that is both good and bad. And for myself, I spent five years as a, a purple belt. It was my longest belt. I skyrocketed to purple belt, and my growth was stagnated because I wouldn't address the areas where I was weak. I was insisting on my lightweight, rapid movement style, having an unpassable guard, relying on that as a thing. My passing game wasn't that good because I could always rely on a guard. And that is something that left me in stagnation. And I was pushed through that by John Machado, namely, and helped me kind of push through and learn how to pass. I had to like, stop laying on your back, no more. You're going to spend the next month passing. And there's a few areas where I had some weakness and he helped adjust me, which was humbling. And I got my brown belt. And the brown belt is the confident belt. And within the tribe, you know you're going to get a black belt now. You, you have to do something really stupid 
to not make it past your brown belt. The purple belt is the hump. The brown belt's the top of the hill. Now it's downhill. And you polish all of your skills. You're confident. To use my water analogy, swimming, the white belt is the non-swimmer. You throw them in water, they panic, they move their extremities, they drown. They slowly learn how to float, how to relax, use their hips, they're a blue belt. They learn the strokes, the basic strokes, and get pretty good at that they're moving into purple belt. The purple belt will still occasionally go back to white belt panic, but mostly they're acting like a black belt. Then when you get through those hardships, when you know how to relax and let the water move you, now you're a brown belt. And it's the holding pattern for the black belt. It's the touch-up and the polishing of everything and the reassessing everything. And then black belt, you start that all over again. The new black belt is humble. They're like, I'm a black belt now. This is intense. Wow, I'm humble. Then the first degree comes, they're eager. I love being a black belt. I'm going to learn more. This is awesome. The second one comes, they're a little cocky. I'm winning competitions. I'm kicking ass. Then they get confident in their third and then so on and so forth. And as I promote everyone, I always say, the only opportunity you have to quit this is the day you get a new belt or a stripe. So if you really think, I don't really like jujitsu, I think I'm going to quit, you have to wait until the next belt or strike. Then you have 24 hours, and you should really think about it. Do I want to go on or not? Don't just subconsciously show up. Like, actually pause and take some control and say, do I want to quit? And if the choice is no, you're committing to the next belt or strike. And if the choice is yes, then go ahead and quit for a couple of months or a year. You probably will want to come back. Because a lot of times, like I still occasionally, I'll meet guys who train back in Horion's garage with Hicks and Hoyce and Hegan. And they'll be, God, I wish I would never have quit. But I never meet somebody who says, I wish I would have quit back when I was a blue belt. I stuck this thing out. Now I'm a damn black belt. I wish I would have quit. That's something you don't hear. What makes a great teacher and instructor? I've been told that I am a great coach and I'm learning to become a good group instructor. But I was always a very good one-on-one coach. I'm good at finding the holes in your game and strengths and tweaking them a bit. And in the last like five years, I've become a better group instructor where I'm teaching the group things. And one of the tools that I learned is I pretend I'm teaching my white belt ignorant self. So one thing I've got to be is patient and expect that some of the reactions will be, oh, that's easy. I, I, I know that. Or I can't do this. That's too hard. Those two extremes are the common reactions when we learn anything new. And if I recognize it in myself, again, then I can have compassion and empathy for others. But as soon as I think I know everything, or I know the way to do the underpass or the overpass, then I'm no longer practicing the art. Because the art is a practice, and it keeps you humble. Because what is the art? The art is how do I control and submit my opponent, utilizing the least amount of athletics and attributes, and the maximum amount of knowledge, skill, cunningness, and guile. That's the art. What is the sport? The sport is how do I deploy my art within the man-made rules of the game, utilizing all my athletics. So 
there's the separation. What is Think Street? That's the hypothetical nature of imagining life and death of combat. And I don't mean a backyard fist fight or a pub fight. That's unlicensed MMA. That's sport. It's just not regulated sport. That's males engaging in the age-old thing, the duel. When I say think street, it's for the woman walking across the empty lot at night and sees someone walking near her. That's what I say when I mean you think street. Or you're a tough athlete, you're really strong, you're not worried necessarily about yourself being attacked, but you suddenly hear screaming in the corner and two guys are doing some obvious violent crime to one. Knowing you, there's multiple opponents, you're going to be outnumbered. That's what I mean by think street. I don't mean unlicensed but dueling. It's keeping that balance between street art and sport and not blurring it. Because I call street red for blood, right? I call sport blue for organization and the values of being fair. Obsession with fairness is sport. And the art is black and white. And when you mix all these, you get a purple. And you can't distinguish the red from the blue, the black from uh, the white staring at this purple, this mauve color or violet or, or whatever it may. You have to separate them in order to see what elements make it up. And sometimes it's the black. You throw in so much black that you erase the red and the blue. Sometimes you throw in so much white that you erase it and it becomes bright and clear. But it's that constant continual change. And as an instructor... I'm trying to convey the art the best I can, keeping in mind the street and the practicality of the sport. Because we've got to train this thing. Sometime at the end of class, we must roll. All right, guys, slap hands and roll. Let's see if what I taught you works. So in some ways, the sport is the real laboratory. The street is what keeps it all honest. It's kind of like the omniscient honesty hovering over both the sport and the art. It's keeping those two linked. Can you tell me a time that you ever wanted to quit or considered or entertained the idea of quitting? Oh, probably once a week it'll cross my mind. <laughs> like, God, I wish I had another job. The grass is always greener on the other side. Sometimes after a huge injury, I'll think, God, maybe this is it. I got to quit. And it's usually a very passing thought. I've never, ever, like, had a deep feeling of, God, I want to quit. I, I've never had that. I've had periods of time where circumstances of life forced me to quit for periods of time. And I have even once realized that if I don't get back on that mat soon, I might not ever come back. Like, I got to get on there soon. Like, I got to go now or this thing that I do four times a week is going to become twice a week, then it's going to become twice a month, then it'll become twice a year, then I just don't go anymore. And that's usually how people quit. Rarely do they declare, I'm going to quit, I'm done. They create circumstances that enable them to rationalize that they quit. And that's true with a lot of things that people quit. Usually people don't publicly announce, I'm going to quit. Which is why I say to all the students, the only time you get to choose to quit is the day you get promoted. That's it. Because then you are faced with the truths where you can truly evaluate it. And you can even decide, 
I'm going to take a month off. But then it's a controlled decision. It's being assertive rather than passive or aggressive. One of the things I find fascinating about you and that I didn't even realize was in existence were, were all of these, what I call ronins, right? These people that were uh, sort of individual sort of jujitsu practitioners throughout the, in my context, the United States, yep. right? In different places. And having grown up in California, I've been, during the time I was, I was sort of spoiled with a lot of jujitsu choices, especially since I was near San Francisco. There were yeah. multiple choices. And having interviewed all these people and gone to Globetrotters, which is a, a camp kind of organization that you're very familiar with. I inspired Christian to start those camps. It was it's his idea, but I inspired him and gave him some confidence that he could pull this off. And I even told him, I remember in my mat room, I said, you're the guy who could pull it off because jujitsu is so tribal and he had recently been kind of kicked out of a tribe and was kind of bummed because it sucks being shunned out of a tribe. Again, we fear public shame. And it's a way that leaders often control groups, whether they're jujitsu groups, sports teams, or political parties. They control it through shame. And he had been shamed. And he came by, he was writing his book, he was globe trotting around the world, and slept in my garage on the mat. And what he really liked, we saw written on my wall, was unaffiliated, which you can see up there. And he loved that. And he's like, that is so cool. And he asked me if, if I'm that. And I said, no, I kind of can't be that. I'm like in the jujitsu world, a made guy. I can't go against the tribe. I can recognize it for both its good value and bad, but no. And it inspired him to begin the Globe Trotter camp. And he, I, I told him again, that you're the only guy who could pull this off. And it, it was awesome, right? Yeah, it, it's and it's amazing. I went to one of the camps, and I, I talk about it often in the show. It was a couple of years ago in Arizona. Unfortunately, you were not there at that particular year, but you've been to you've coached at several of them. I met all these individual black belts, and and so many of them had told me these struggles of like not having a formal coach or a black belt in their particular little town in the middle of America or something like in the deep south or something like that. And some of them were like Chris Souter came to town. I asked him if I can be under him, you know, whatever you may call it. Here's where I, I have to watch my pride and greed. I don't automatically go, oh, yeah, I'm going to let this guy come under me because I'm building an army now. Like, that's not my way of thinking. From my perspective, that leads to unhappiness. If you have my personality type, that leads to unhappiness. For other people, it makes them feel content to build an army, whatever. I tend to pick up a lot of guys like there was a period of time. This was probably about 15 years ago. And I swear in the process of about a year and a half, someone would host me for a seminar. I would go out. They'd pick me up at the airport and go. So here's what happened. I was under blah, blah, blah. And then this happened. He was sleeping with somebody in the student. And there was an extortion racket going on. So, suddenly some reason. And I would finish the tale for them. And they say, you know who I'm talking about? And I'd say, no. But I hear this story so often that it's become a trope that we have in this industry. And there's a saying, leadership is lonely at the top. And loneliness can breed bad behavior. Being the ultimate authority at top, even if before you got there, you had a bunch of good values, it's going to test whether you're a tyrant or not. And some people, the tyrancy seems to take over more than their good traits. I think leadership, once you are in charge, 
you have to recognize, again, start with humility, then eagerness. Recognize when you become a cocky leader. Go, ooh, I got to stop that. What is cockiness? What's the other side of that, the healthy version? Confidence. And then always go back to being humble again. It's when we get stuck in cockiness. That's that advanced amateur, that sophomoric guy who understands a little philosophy and thinks he understands philosophy, who understands a little economics and thinks he, he should be running the IMF. One of my favorite books of 2016 is called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. He was a, a high-level national security advisor. It opens up with how many people have these huge opinions on the Iraq war, whether we should be there or not, these massive opinions and can't even identify Iraq on the map, have no idea what a Sunni is, a Shiite, yet they have these strong-held opinions. And that's part of the problem. And the other thing is with the rise of the internet, suddenly by like 2005, everybody was an expert at medicine. Everybody's a doctor now, WebMD. Oh, I can look it up. Now I'm a doctor. And as you open up with sometimes questioning the authority or institution is good. But you question it from the scientific perspective, not from the I think you're lying, I'm going to prove you wrong perspective. Have you ever opened a school? And if not, why? I have never opened up a school. I've on and off thought about it many times. And increasingly, believe it or not, just this last year, I've thought about it again. I'm 58 years old. I figure I have 10 years left where I can teach once a day, where I can physically instruct once a day. So if I do it, the time is now. One of the biggest reasons why I haven't opened a school is I live in LA. And like how everyone complains everything's expensive in California, there's a reason why. And it's not because of Democrats and it's not because of Republicans. It's because of the law of supply and demand. Real estate is expensive. I know guys in the north of England or in the Midwest who have these giant warehouse academies for these awesome prices per month. I couldn't have a tiny little corner unit in LA would cost three times as much. Right. Our friend Jay Pages. Jay Pages, yeah. I love Jay. There's a reason why people move away from New York and LA San Francisco to open up school. It's the price of real estate. That little corner lot can't be a school. It's got to be a gas pump. And the people who do pull off schools in New York and LA tend to be the biggest names in the industry. And in, in LA, I'm a medium fish in a giant pond. I'm not a big fish in a big pond. I'm a medium fish in a giant pond. Now, could I pull it off? I believe I could. In the last 20 years, I've spent my life traveling from school to school, seeing what the successful ones, the struggling ones, and the ones that fail, and understanding intuitively and anecdotally and experientially why some win and some don't. And I think I kind of have my finger on the zeitgeist of the art. You got to share that with us. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like I know the algorithm when it comes to picking stocks. Because I travel the world so much. Because I'm not stuck in a Wall Street office. Because I'm traveling all over and getting exposed to so much information. I pick stocks as good or better than Warren Buffett, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi. My numbers are better than theirs. Because I'm in the zeitgeist. And I can feel what's going to drive things a lot. How'd you learn to tie your belt? 
I never formally learned it. I tied my belt as a kid in Shotokan karate. And because I didn't want to look like a jerk because of my ego on my first private with Hoist with Gracie, I had already tied my belt. So I never got that instruction. And I tie it probably the way that most people think is a horrible way to tie it. And my mentors and coaches growing up from Hoist to Hegan to Jean-Jacques to Hickson to all them, the way I noticed they tied their belt was basically the same way I did. You've sort of mentioned it, the splintering of jujitsu now. Yes. And sort of where we're at right now. You know, you've mentioned IBJJF was kind of a thing. Uh, we have MMA for jujitsu, you know, jujitsu for MMA, if yep. you will. Uh, Self-defense. Self yep. And the hobbyist in general, right? And now we have this sort of, I don't know now, it's always been around, but it's really pervasive now is this whole ADCC wrestling just stand up kind yep. of uh, seems yep. to be the in the flavor and almost anti-guard yes. uh, kind of jujitsu. I'm sure that I was one of the people that influenced that drive because 10 years ago, I was giving anti-guard speeches or shaming people for pulling the guard. And people have heard me say this before, which is kind of a joke, but it's kind of true. Pulling guard is like masturbation. We all do it, but you shouldn't do it in public and be proud of it. But at the same time, let's not shame people for jacking off. And that's my opinion on guard. So we do you have do any it. concern with the, the splintering of jujitsu, you know, that it's going no. in all these different directions? I am not concerned at all. I'm one of those guys, that I, I know there's people that run around and want to preserve jujitsu and preserve the culture and all this stuff. I am definitely, personality-wise, not one of those guys. I am grateful that those guys are out there, but that's not me. I am much more the liberal, not progressive, necessarily, the liberal. The, the, the liberal sees the value in conservatism and progressivism. The liberal is looking for balance. The liberal is looking to be open-minded to these things. And it, it pisses me off that that word has been maligned and misused. So, Chris, yes. CombatBase.com. Com oh, yeah. Let us know I, I, what, what is CombatBase.com. And uh, I think it's wonderful, number one, that you're doing this because, like I told Henry Eakins and some other people, we need to document you guys. The guys have been in this game for so long, and we need to have this for the future generations because there hasn't been a lot of a voice, a loud voice of you guys sharing your, your wisdom. And I was really worried that it was just going to, you know, disappear because a lot of people have taken their football and walked away. Oh, yeah. You know, with like some really great information. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot so of combat have. base. Um, Monday, I was with Hickson training and we were going over a few nuanced things of, of a hip throw and I, I, I had this pretty good version of but there was one little adjustment that like I now have to alter and those little things as Hickson says but Chris I don't want you to worry about the techniques the steps it's the concepts right right so yeah I'm a concepts instructor mainly in that way and you know there's a jujitsu that will fit every foot there's a style out there, a technical approach, a non-technical approach that will fit you. I certainly have ones that uh, styles and systems and organizations that I don't like. Let people do whatever that they want to do. I'm not about trying to control jujitsu. I'm not into this control thing. So combat based. Oh yeah, about combat based.com. And I'm ADHD. Combat based. <laughs> but com basically. We call it the Combat Base Club. Join our club. Have me out 
for a seminar. I will be your guide and mentor. If you are paying me money, I will not order you what kind of clothing you can wear, which is kind of cultish that people pay money to be told they have to wear this certain patch or gi. It also kind of reminds me of motorcycle gangs. If you need a patch over, look me up. We'll give you a patch over. And yeah, join Combat Base. But.com, and we will be there to support you in your jujitsu, in your freedom. We are there to support you in. I have instructionals there, merchandise and gear. It's always cool to have gear. I like gear. I am my own artist. I do all of my own art. That's my shirt. I always imagine, as an artist, imagine if everybody had to do their own art. Then, in the world of logo comp, I'd be doing pretty good, right? Yeah, you would. Yeah, you would. If it's on YouTube, I'll show you, like, here's some of my art. I did this piece after the 2008 economic collapse. That piece there is my Made in the USA for kimonos, which I attempted to start. Oh, I'm going to be having a, an origin gi. There's my typical jiu-jitsu coach. As a general rule, think street, train sport, practice art at this academy. There's the the grand master of all jiu-jitsu right there. His name is Shuto Palubra. He's the grand master. So, Chris, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to in terms of your socials? CombatBase.com. My socials are Chris Howder 96 Chris Howder Art, and Combat Base. Look them up on Instagram. Please yeah. follow, like, and subscribe. Smash, <laughs> smash the like and subscribe button. The Combat Base <laughs> YouTube channel. Smash it. Don't just look up Combat Base or me because I'm on other people's channels all over. Then you're not on my channel. Right. But like and subscribe. Smash it. God, Chris, I would love to have a conversation with you in a library because I can tell you you have a whisper voice. You know, people around you just can't hear <laughs> you, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thanks again for listening and watching. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Again, it, like, like Chris said, like, subscribe, and do all that stuff and give us positive reviews and the whole thing. Again, Chris, thank you so much for your time. It was a tremendous honor to have thank you Thank you, brother.